to want to thumb through. It's right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. It's right before Romans. We're going to begin with chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand there looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. It was Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons who in all was about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled with the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a caldema, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. So this is all one Broadway play, one story. Dr. Luke finishes his gospel address to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus means a lover or seeker of God. And after a a sort of brief intermission, going out to the lobby, the lights flicker, 
we pick up with Luke and Theophilus for the Acts of the Apostles. Are we ready for this sunrise? I hope so. I hope so. And if you're not prepared for this book and all that we're going to explore and hopefully experience within it, you'll find very sympathetic company in the apostles, at least for one Sunday. They're going to sympathize with you. They found themselves at a crossroads, which you might find yourselves at as well. And my prayer is that you will choose as they did to act as the first responders to the world's most pressing emergency. First responders to the scene at the world's most pressing emergency. Let's begin first with Jesus. Early in his ministry, he taught that to see the kingdom of God, a person must be born again. So the last two weeks we've explored just how practical this teaching actually is, and specifically how we can initiate a dialogue about where someone currently stands in relationship with Jesus and where they still need to get to. We call it the birth line. And what Jesus didn't explain in his teaching about new birth, and indeed couldn't so early in his ministry, is how to get there from where a person was to where they needed to get to to see the kingdom of God. Big picture, we compared this to looking at one of those old school GPS maps. Right? You're in a car, you got one of these GPSs that showed you where you are and where you needed to get to, but it was still calculating turn-by-turn navigation, right? And sometimes it keeps still calculating, still calculating, and it keeps going. Well, in order for Jesus to give us turn-by-turn navigation, how to get where we are, lost, helpless, in need, to eternal life with him, roads first had to be paved. Jesus first had to live out a perfect life, die a death that we deserved, to conquer death, to prove he's the king of the universe, to ascend so he could tag team with the Holy Spirit and send God, the Holy Spirit, down to all who believe to empower them and to be with Him. And each of these decisive actions to make rescue from death possible for anyone who would trust Him is called the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And each action is present in Luke's opening lines to Theophilus. I hope you caught that. Let's see it again here. First of all, verse 1. We're told briefly that Jesus did and He taught. Luke covers this all in his gospel, the gospel of Luke, which is the first half of this play, this story, this narrative that he continues here in Acts. So the first element of the gospel is that Jesus did only perfect deeds and he spoke only perfect words. He lived perfectly. And not in a way that made us feel bad, in a way that just revealed how good God is. He cared for those previously thought unlovable, the cast-offs, cast off, but he also commended the faith of the powerful and the wealthy when they showed it. He showed his authority over nature and disease, but in a way that was humble. He told people, don't tell anybody about what I've done for you. In other words, he was the humble king that we all want, the ruler who loves us, the right kind of priest who could get between us and God to care for us. He also spoke perfect words from God. Right? All those wise and amazing things. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Let him who has not sinned cast the first stone. 
who's an anointed prophet who only spoke the words that God the Father told him to speak. That's the first element of the gospel. The second element is that he suffered and died. We see that in verse 3, he suffered. He died in our place specifically. The pastor who died a couple years ago, John Stott, British pastor, said it so well that salvation can be summarized like this. Man has tried to substitute himself for God. So God substituted himself for man. Man has tried to be his own God, be in control, but God decided sacrificially to substitute himself for man. Consider the most painful way to die. Jesus endured it. A slow, suffocating death that ended in literally a broken heart, a burst heart. Consider the most humiliating way to die. A curse for the Jews. A curse word for all Gentiles, the whole world, wouldn't even say the word crucifixion. You know how some words are acceptable, people feel like to say? Some curse words? Well, guess what? This one wasn't. Nobody would say it. Jesus died the most humiliating death. He raised his hand and took it for us. We also see the gospel here in the first few lines to Theophilus, where we read, he presented himself alive to them by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. Jesus defeated death by rising from it. Prior to his death, Jesus predicted the most unlikely comeback ever, and he did it. He came back from death. If this is true, guys, then so are all his audacious claims that he is the way to know God forever, the way. That he alone has the authority to forgive sins. That he came and indeed wants to restore and indeed wants to use the broken those who know that they're sick and needed a doctor. Those are the people who chooses. All of these things are true. Jesus rose from the dead. And the last element of the gospel, until the day he was taken up, we see in verse 2, Jesus ascended so he could give us God the Holy Spirit and use us, us, to grow his kingdom. People often wonder why Jesus couldn't just stay. He appeared for 40 days after all. It would have been nice to have him around. <laughs> He'd be so popular. But even as, you know, as a human being who has nonetheless God, Jesus could not be in two places at once. Notice that? Jesus walked places. He never teleported. Right? Well, he did take a, a young donkey once. But that's about the extent of it. Otherwise, he walked. Yet Christians are now nearly everywhere, and God is using them to grow his kingdom. A presence everywhere. Notice, what does Luke say first to Theophilus about Jesus. He says, I have dealt with all Jesus began to do and teach. You notice that little detail? All that Luke began to do and teach. Every scholar agrees on this, that Luke is hinting that Jesus now continues. If Jesus began before his death, he now continues his ministry through the church, fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is basically the book of Acts, a perfect summary. Jesus continuing his ministry through his church, powered by the Holy Spirit. And so Luke leads with the gospel, because that's what propels people. That's what changes people. That's what makes people respond. In fact, whenever the gospel is shared, you can go back and look at this, guys. Whenever you read your Bible, even before we get to Acts, I want us to be people who are attentive to elements of the gospel, pieces, hints, little shards of the gospel. And if you notice, whenever the gospel is shared, there's always a response. It's never light. It's always strong, one way or the other. 
What is your gut response this morning hearing the gospel? I've shared it in four pieces, just as Luke shared it. You may think, man, okay, he lived the perfect life. Yes, Jesus' death, his resurrection. He ascended to heaven. Ryan, I've heard this before. And you just shut down because you feel like maybe you're beyond the basics. And you don't need to remember this sacrifice on your behalf again. You're not too dissimilar from those whom God provided manna in the desert, which was a foreshadowing of God giving himself in the gospel. And some insisted when they looked at this bread come from heaven, this is not enough. This day's portion is not enough, so they gathered more. And what had happened to it? It rotted. Some people said, I need more than this. And they grumbled. And so they lost their joy at God's provision in their life. Maybe that's your response to the gospel. It's happened before. Maybe you refuse to hear and trust what you can't see. I can, I'm sympathetic to that. You aren't too dissimilar from a people who couldn't see their leader, Moses, who was a type of Christ, couldn't see him for a few days. So they decided to give in to self-indulgent idolatry around a golden calf. They couldn't see Moses. They kept repeating, we can't, where's Moses? Where's Moses? We can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't hear him. And so their response to God's giving himself was to walk away. Maybe you're here this morning and we talk about the gospel, this free gift of salvation. And you think to yourself, you know, why do you let people off the hook so easily? Why do you let some people here whose lives I know, who I've seen out this weekend, why do you let them off so easily, Ryan? You know, God freely granted repentance and life to a wicked city once, a famously wicked city called Nineveh the Las Vegas of the ancient Near East. Yet Jonah refused to accept their being accepted by God. Because, hey, I lived, a, I lived a good life for you, God. I've lived the way I was supposed to. Jonah even complains, I knew you were gracious and compassionate. In John chapter 6, Jesus freely offers himself to any who would depend on him for life. And you know what happens? More people leave Jesus in droves than at any time short of the cross. Maybe you feel unworthy of such love, such giving, until you earn it, until you're able to contribute. Now look, there's also responses to the gospel that are rejoicing, that are singing. That are, are, there's, a, there's a response in the Bible to the gospel of, of dancing with just one's undergarments on, being so excited about it you want to tell everyone you know. Regardless, anytime you see the gospel, there's a response. And the apostles are the first to eyewitness the entire gospel Right? They saw Jesus live, do perfect deeds, say perfect words. They were nearby when Jesus died, and one of them was there, suffering such a humiliating and gruesome death. Jesus appeared to them, having risen from the dead, and they watched him fly into the clouds. How will they then respond, and how will we? In verses 4 through 11, we start to feel that the apostles are at a kind of crossroads. And which way are they going to go? So let's get into the story and feel that with them. Jesus gives them a command not to depart from Jerusalem, but he says, wait for the promised Holy Spirit, God, to be with you. Their reply is a very self-serving but understandable question. We're going to get back to this in a moment. Jesus also tells them they're going to receive power to be witnesses, witnesses of him, like legal witnesses. First at home, then out in the suburbs, And finally, to the ends of the earth. Then he leaves. Their reaction, totally paralyzed. To the point where an angel has to intervene and tell them to stop loitering, guys. 
Jesus is going to come back the same way he came. Let's look a little more in depth at their initial reply to Jesus at verse 6. Look at that with me in your Bible. Verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And you know this is a question they've been wanting to ask. He's been with them 40 days. He's going to leave. He's going to fly up into heaven. And they're at a crossroads here because it's going to be either Jesus' plan or immediate and familiar comfort and security. Jesus' plan, immediate comfort and security. Firstly, the phrase in their question of Jesus betrays that they expected change immediately, didn't they? Will you at this time, is this the moment? Jesus, we've given up everything, our jobs, our home. We've postponed marriages to follow you for three years. You remember that time, maybe you remember this in your Sunday school classes, or maybe you remember it just because you read your Bible regularly. Maybe you remember that time when the apostles are with Jesus and he promised to give them rest. They were on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, let's get away. We need some rest. And they're sailing along. And as they, as they get excited, you can tell, they're, I, I sense they're excited about this rest. We're finally going to have relaxation. We're finally just going to get to be with Jesus. And about 5,000 people start to run alongside the shoreline. And when they dock, Jesus looks at them, harassed and helpless. And guess what? Ministry continues. Some loaves, some fish are broken out. And the disciples know, here we go again, another test of our faith. Another moment where we're going to be tested. Isn't that over now, Jesus? At this time, please. Now the verb in their question of Jesus betrays their desire for comfort and security. What do they say here? Will you restore the kingdom? Restore means they are thinking of the kingdoms of David and Solomon. The good old years, right? Think back to some parts in your life. You look back nostalgically. You think, oh, those were the good years. Peace, prosperity, comfort. Aruba, Jamaica. Ooh, I want to take you. Right? Those, Those times. The object of their question is to Israel which betrays that they expected salvation for who? One race and one nation. In other words, people like me, who I'll get on with immediately. Aren't you going to give it to Israel? Now, not all of us, but some of us here can relate. You've you've run some miles with Jesus Christ. He's grown you. you. He's used you to help others. You've endured hardship. People have even spoken unkind words to you. Or they've given you a funny look ever since you kind of started to talk about your story about how you came to trust Jesus. Or maybe they just don't even respond to your emails anymore. And what you actually want Jesus to answer you is this, this question. When will the struggle stop? Can't can't this just be over now? I can just kind of hang out with people I like. Let's be done. I know I want this so many times. I, I want to act like the husband I should be to Katie. I, I want that. I, I, I'm tired, frankly, of, of this summer in many respects. I, my two boys have been together all summer. God bless them. But they're in the boxing ring at this point, right? they got the gloves on. They're landing emotional punches on day 57 of summer. And sometimes real punches. Love you guys. <laughs> right? I just, I just get tired of that. And I get tired of seeing that you guys, the church I love, get hurt. And I wonder, God, how, how can I possibly help with this? I even think, like, am, I'm not sure I'm the guy. You want to step in and assist. I don't have all the answers. I'm tired. I, I understand that. I know we often want this. 
Along comes Jesus, who says in verse 8, not, guess what, guys? Yes, I'm going to restore Israel. You're going, to get everyone, you're going to get to be with all the people you love. You're going to get to completely be at rest now and forever. No, he says in verse 8, you will receive power from the whole, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And this is the defining statement of this entire book, guys. I'm going to do many things, but your focus, church, will be sharing the good news about me with others, first with your neighbor and then beyond. That's got to be your focus. Just witness to what I've done. Witness to how I've loved. Witness to what I've conquered. How other people can have it too. That's pretty much the theme of all of Acts. The rest is icing on the cake. Two weeks ago, I turned off my phone, laptop, took about two and a half days of prayer and study retreat to read Acts, outline it, see what people who are much smarter than me have to say about it. After uh, day one, a word just kept flashing in my mind. That word was emergency. Just over and over again, I just kind of sensed God putting that word on my, my mind, emergency. So I decided, well, let's look that word up in the dictionary. Dictionary.com defines emergency as a sudden, urgent, usually unexpected occasion requiring immediate action. In other words, not just like someone's got a broken thumb or their arms hanging out of their socket. It's a sudden, urgent, usually unexpected occasion requiring immediate action. A man claiming to be God does perfect deeds and says perfect things throughout his life. Then he dies a gruesome death, rises from death, appears to you for 40 days, and he flies away. If that's not an emergency, I don't know what is. Something that you see this, you witness this, and it requires immediate action. He gives us an immediate action to take, to witness to others, which is going to require, by the way, faith, pain, discomfort, healing, enduring hard things, praying out loud. There's a reason why the Greek word for, translated as witness evolved to mean something different. That Greek word is martyrs. Martyr s martyr. First, it just meant a witness. But as time went on and people began to share about Jesus, they were harmed for it. Their families were harmed for it. They were killed for doing it. Today, it's just very, very, very uncomfortable for us. And yet, that's what Jesus calls us to. To respond as the early church did, to do the acts that they did, comes down to one question in response to the gospel. And that question is this. Which way will you run? There are a few who move toward the sounds of chaos. Ready to respond at a moment's notice. time comes, we are the first to move toward the sounds of injustice and despair. They are the few. The humble, the church. <laughs> it's a real commercial. I don't know why you guys are laughing. Um, but that, ultimately, that is what this comes down to. When we read about the early church, for them, that was the question. For us, it is to, which way will you run? 
as you saw at the end of that clip. Thankfully for our sake, for the world's sake, these 11 men ran in the right direction. They were the first responders to the gospel. First responders to the gospel. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to focus on the many responses of these apostles in the early church. We're going to focus on 30 of them, including trust, obey, gather, plead, include, strengthen, multiply, listen, mourn, and gain. And I mention these specifically because while each act is in the upcoming film, we have the trailer right here in Acts chapter 1. All of those actions in Acts chapter 1. Each act is a preparatory shadow of the mission to come. They are preparing the apostles are to witness, preparing for their mission, preparing to run for the gospel. First we see that they trust and obey. The apostles lead the scene of their Savior and obediently get back to Jerusalem They so trust Jesus' words that they prepare for the coming of the Holy Spirit like He might come at any moment. They gather together, as we see in verse 13, all the names of the remaining apostles. The free inclusion by the Father into His family because of the Gospel makes us want to be with others and gather with them. We see that they include people. When the Gospel is present, when you recognize that you're accepted based on what Jesus did, not because of your last name, Not because of your job, not because of your social status, not because of what you can do for him, but just because he loves you. You start to include others. It may seem normal to us, but that the apostles were together, it says, with the women, read that, and they were together with Mary, the mother of Jesus, verse 13. But you know, in in the Hebrew temple, women sat separately from men as they worshiped God. They sat in, in raised bleachers, able to look on worship, but never participate. Rabbis at Jesus' time taught that women weren't supposed to be acknowledged when you saw them in the streets. But instead, you're supposed to stay six paces behind your man at all times. And yet, when the gospel comes in, when it says we accept you based on not what you've done or your social status or what you look like, people are included immediately, as were the women here with the apostles. We see praying and pleading. There was corporate prayer, united prayer, prevailing prayer, right? There was corporate prayer there all together. There was united prayer. We read, with one accord. Read that there. With one accord they came together. This translates one of Luke's favorite words, homothumadon. Homothumadon, which can mean coming to a consensus. So as they pray, they were coming to one thought, unity of mind and of heart together. They sought the Lord. It was prevailing prayer. They devoted themselves to it. It doesn't give us specific minutes that they prayed or the hours. But the idea communicated here is they kept returning to prayer. And we see this in verse 24 and 25, right? They prayed again, saying, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry. So yes, the stuff about casting lots may be confusing at the end. But the whole point of it is that they prayed. They went back to God again and said, God, who do you want in this? And they waited. It's a prayer that's corporate, united, prevailing. They strengthened and they multiply, especially leadership. Peter felt it was necessary to replace Judas. They listened, especially to the Scriptures. We don't know exactly what led Peter to stand up and talk about what he read in the Psalms. We do know that it happened subsequent to Corporate, united, and prevailing prayer. I kind of imagine it like this. People are sitting around. They're they're worshiping. Maybe some are standing. Some are praying. 
And Peter sits with his Bible and he sits down and he looks through the Psalms and he sees there, oh, we need a 12th apostle to replace Judas, to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, to show that this is going to be Jesus' new community, just the tribes or the old community. We need 12. So he quotes, right, from Psalm 69, Psalm 109. Finally, we see mourning and gaining, Judas and Matthias. The gospel makes a person tender. They gain Matthias, yes, but what's easy to miss is the church's mournful tones surrounding the loss of Judas. You see that? Of course, we use Judas sparingly today as a traitor, as an awful person, etc., etc. This was a brother they knew. This was someone who walked with them. So they say, he was numbered among us and had his share in the ministry. Later it says, one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. He was one of these men. He was one of us. Do you hear that? So easy to miss. Further, this tragic suicide, Luke says, became known to all Jerusalem. It's the kind of act, the kind of death that deeply wounds a community. See here, what I want us to see is that there's all this preparation, there's all this action just waiting for the Holy Spirit, preparing for what we're going to see throughout Acts. We're going to see all these actions in grand stage during the rest of the book. The early church who were less than us this morning prepare for their mission to witness even as they wait. And the point is the same for us. Prepare as you wait. I, I don't know what you're waiting on God for. I, I hope you are waiting on Him to show you the next person He's asking you to witness to, to love well for Christ. As a church, we know our marching orders, and yet we still need to wait on a few specifics on how to carry that out. Roald Amundsen had a dream. Roald Amundsen, his dream was to become the first person to lead a successful expedition to the South Pole. He would launch this expedition in 1911. But in the years leading up to it, He was famous for how he waited, how he prepared for the launch. When he was just in his 20s, Roald Amundsen traveled from Norway to Spain for a two-month sailing trip to earn his nautical master's certificate. It was 1899, 12 years prior to his launch. He uh, he went on a 2,000-mile journey to return home. Now you think, oh, I'll just get back on a boat again, right? Maybe take a train, a donkey, a mule, a horse and buggy. No, he, he bicycled his way back. He primarily went across Europe bicycling. Why? In preparation for the endurance he would need to cross the wastelands of the South Pole. He was getting ready. Amundsen then experimented with eating raw, hold your stomach here, raw dolphin meat to determine the usefulness, its usefulness and energy supply. Why, he reasoned, because someday he might get shipwrecked on this expedition. And if there were dolphins around, he wanted to know if he could eat them. So I'm going to try it out. And he did. He even made a pilgrimage to apprentice with Eskimos. How about that? Observing how Eskimos never hurry, they move slowly and steadily to avoid excessive sweat, which can cause a person to move from just cold to freezing cold and sub-zero temperatures. He adopted Eskimo clothing and loose-fitting clothes, etc. Emmons's philosophy was this. He said, I prepare with a purpose so that when conditions turn against me, I can draw from a reservoir of strength. Yet, I, also I prepare 
so that when conditions turn in my favor, I can strike hard. As a man claiming to be God does perfect deeds, says perfect truth, dies a gruesome death, rises from death, he appears to common people who had no reason to lie about it. And they start talking about it, testifying. He flies away just as he predicted. How will you respond to this? If you want to join on mission with Jesus, let's prepare together as a united body in one accord, Sunrise Community Church. Amen? Now, this is the point where I typically conclude the message with a prayer. But seeing as the early church first responded by gathering, and here we are, they responded by listening to the Scriptures, and here we just did, it seems appropriate that we ought to consider participating in prayer that's corporate, that's united, and that's prevailing. But the response is totally free and up to you. So what we're going to do, we're going to pray for a few items, for a few items of prayer in small groups to close our service this morning. There are going to be four or five persons, maybe six in your row, who you want to get with you and pray together. Uh, Suggestions on how to pray are going to be up on the screen. But I want you to know, if you don't feel comfortable praying, if, if you have somewhere to be in five minutes or you've got to collect your child, please feel totally at liberty to leave. We're not going to judge you. At the same time, I want to encourage you to step into this space, into this moment, to pray with others. It might be the first time you ever do that. You don't have to even talk out loud. Let just others pray with you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather. You can feel free to gather with three to six people in your row. Or you can feel free to go right now, as the band plays some music to help set the atmosphere.